the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks for that introduction, Dr. Bill. Welcome to the show. It's a special Thanksgiving edition at that. I know you have a lot of choices. There's a limited amount of time, too. So I appreciate you joining us today. And special thanks to the Salem Media Network for distributing the program and my friend Tim, who's helping out with the recording today. This program, as you know, is about shining a light on extraordinary achievement. We dig into the background of people who are making a difference and making an impact. That's today's guest. He's Brother Luck, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because he's on his way to becoming a legendary name on reality cooking competition shows, including Chopped, Beat Bobby Flay, who he did beat, (laughs) two seasons of Bravo's Top Chef, Rachel Ray, and The Today Show, to name a few. But here in Colorado Springs, uh, Chef Luck is the owner of Four by Brother Luck and actually has a new restaurant, Street Eats, opening up at the Colorado Springs Airport next year. And if that's not enough, he's also the author of a memoir, No Luck's Given. Life is hard, but there is hope. So, Brother Luck, welcome to the show. Oh, man, thank you for the great introduction. I feel extremely special when I get to hear such a a powerful recap. Well, you have have been blessed, but you've also walked an incredible journey. Amen. And I just thought it would be wonderful here on the eve of Thanksgiving week to sit down and talk with you, uh, not only about your life, but we'll get into kind of tips and ideas for Thanksgiving. There's a lot of amateurs out there. <laughs> You're not one of them, but you can help us mere mortals f- figure out and get through the Thanksgiving Yeah, holiday. anything we can do to avoid dry turkeys or, you know, bland, extremely crumbly stuffing. I think that's the trick. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there's going to be a lot of disasters out there. The Butterball Hotline is open late, right? <laughs> the Butterball Hotline, I love it. <laughs> okay, so before we get going here... Um, we're recording this at Focus on the Family. Uh, not far from here, uh, used to be a man who worked here. His name was John Eldridge. Mm-hmm. He was an employee here. I didn't work in directly with him. I knew of him. But he wrote a book called Wild at Heart. Powerful. And that book ministered to you. Mm. I'm wondering if you could tell us, how did you get connected to that? And you were in a study about yeah. the book. Yeah. You know, um, I was at church one day, and... After the sermon, we were leaving, my wife and I, and something internal just kind of awoken. It was, it, was, it was saying, you need to go back in and ask about a small group. And it was completely against my grain, you know, definitely not my forte. And I uncomfortably walked back into the church, and I found one of the, the elders, and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in joining one of these men's groups. Um, I feel like I need to. 
And we sat down. We had a brief conversation. He's like, I'm going to put you in a group. Here's the information. Here's the contact. And uh, here's the book you should buy. And it was Wild at Heart. And I didn't know anything about John Eldridge at the time. I was so apprehensive. I mean, I almost, you know, canceled many, many times before the actual meeting. And when I walked into the room, uh, this living room, it was a bunch of guys who were much older than I was. And and I didn't think I was going to have anything in in common with them. And it was so powerful to realize over the next few weeks how much we all connected on the same internal struggles that we have. And the the book was really helpful. I mean, discovering my timeline um, encouraged me to write my book. Hmm. Now, the line that you quote in your book of his book that seemed to me a lot to you is a man needs a much bigger orbit than a woman. Mm. He needs a mission, a life purpose, and he needs to know his name. Yeah. That struck you at that moment in your life. Yeah. There's, there's power in a name. And with a name like Brother Luck, I've always embraced that. That's my front porch to uh, approachability. So I build a lot of my conversations just on my name. You know, hi, my name is Brother Luck. Yes, that's my real name. It, it was such a good line that I read because it made me think more than just I'm a husband, right? Or I'm a provider. Who am I and what is my mission in life? And then I have to discover who I truly am with my name. How did your mom and dad give you that name? Well, I'm actually the fourth. So it was passed down. I carry a brother as the fourth generation, which is very special. Uh, my family's Creole. So it was a nickname with my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father was the first one to legally change his name to brother. So I still carry the Marcellus Haywood, which is my, my middle name, uh, which was their first names. But brother is my legal name. So I was born brother Marcellus Haywood Luck the Fourth. Very august kind of name, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you grew up, uh, early childhood was in San Francisco. Yeah, born in the Bay Area. What do you remember about that childhood of yours? Oh, you know, childhood, the 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 smell of the salt, the... The barking of the seals, walking down Pier 39, the, the farmer's markets, um, the hustle and bustle of the streets, the hills. San Francisco is an amazing place, but it's also a tragic place. I mean, we see hardships nonstop, especially right now. Um, I didn't know I was going to have a struggle in my life until, you know, things struck out of nowhere. And it was it was fast. It was sudden. You talk about uh, asking your mom or dad for some change to look through the binoculars down on the wharf, mm-hmm. looking across to Alcatraz. Yeah. I remember being there as a kid, and, and that was a very impactful. I mean, I imagined myself as a prisoner on the island thinking <laughs> how I remember reading that prisoners could hear the sounds of the city yeah. and even smell uh, the aromas from the restaurants, mm. and like that made their imprisonment even worse. Yeah, uh, I wondered if it did. You weren't really into the food world then, uh, when you were young in San Francisco, or were you? No, I. You know, I was extremely young um, growing up in San Francisco before I kind of relocated around California in the Bay Area. But there's something powerful when when you're in those touristy areas like Pier 39 or on the wharf and you do get to peer through those binoculars and look out into the the white waves that are crashing and and find Alcatraz and you know to imagine the lifestyles that some of those people endured uh, during their imprisonment I mean you know what torture not only do you hear the sounds of the city and you can smell the life of the city but also 
you're in this this deserted island, this this cold, damp, dark area. I mean, it's just surreal to think about. Yeah. Now, your life kind of took a major turn, kind of fell apart when you were about 10 years old. Mm-hmm. You got woken up by your mom, middle of the night. Yeah. Tell us about that awful evening. Yeah. You know, my mother, she stirred my brother and I from our sleep. We had, we had just seen our father in the hospital that day. He had been admitted um, for being sick. And we had spent some time with him, went home. She woke us up and she said, I need to talk to you. Grab your brother. Come to my room. And I remember this chill while walking down the hallway and holding my little brother's hand. And as I walked into that dark room and saw their their massive bed, she sat in the middle crying in the dark. And it hit me something was wrong. Even my 10-year-old mind, it hit me that something was wrong. So as we climbed on the bed, she went right into it. Your your father's gone. He died tonight. Hmm. And that, that hit me so quickly because I knew what she meant without understanding death. And it changed our lives. You know, my brother saw my reaction of tears and emotion and he started to cry. And the next 10 years were hard. You know, really figuring out how to become a man without the image that we're supposed to emulate. We recently spoke with Bob Beal, who is a management consultant, and he has a book all about the power of the fourth grade. And he says that uh, the fourth grade, when you're about 10 years old, is a transformational time in any child's life. Because he says, you have a mind that can begin to understand what's happening, but your heart is still tender Mm. like a child. So clearly, this had a major impact on you. And in, in some cases, hopeful cases, the mom will step up and, and kind of embrace you and, and support you. But you had kind of a, a tough journey following your dad's death. Your mom struggled as well. Yeah. You know, as a child, I think it's easy to be angry at your parents because you're the child and they're supposed to take care of you and everything is selfish in thought. I couldn't see throughout my my youth and my adolescence that my mom was struggling, that my mom was grieving, that my mom was trying to make it and doing the best she she could with the situation that she had. I didn't understand that until I was in my 30s. So a lot of my rebellion came from resentment that I wasn't being chosen first. Hmm. And I think that's natural for a lot of people. We can't look at the other side of the coin and understand the other perspective or the other the other piece of the scenario because it's about us at that time. Yeah. I'm talking with Brother Luck. Uh, <laughs> he is a chef here in Colorado Springs. I'm Paul Batura. You're listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. And, and Brother, you at that moment in your life, you're trying to find something to grab onto you're trying to find a meal at some point because things are tough. There's not a lot of money in your family. You decide to get a job working in a restaurant. Yeah. More out of necessity than out of passion. Is that right? Yeah. You know, the mentors that I found after my father's death were the people I was surrounded by. 
which were the characters of the streets, the, the pimps, the players, the hustlers, the gangbangers, the drug dealers. These are the people that had power, money, and respect. These are the people who reached out and put their arm around me and said, I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. Here's some money for your pocket. I'll support you. I bonded to that. I emulated that. I wanted that. As I got into my adolescence and became a teenager later, I found that I needed to take care of myself even more because I was so independent and I was so isolated and separated from any type of of family at that time. Restaurants offered a hot meal, the opportunity to sleep on a bartender's couch. I found a new family. I found a new support system. And that is what started to lead me down this path of choosing a career, pursuing an education, but also finding positive mentors. Mm. You talk about the street culture and, and your rebellious time. When you look out and you see these gangs that roam and the, all the dysfunction that exists, you have a unique understanding of that. The, these individuals are, are hungry for identity, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they're looking to find some fellowship, I suppose, and they just find it in the wrong places. Yeah. We all want to be part of a pack. We all want to be included. That's human nature. And I think when you are embraced, especially at a moment of weakness or a moment of loneliness, it feels good. And you're willing to do whatever it takes to continue to receive that gratification, to to continue to receive that support. Some people prey on that because they know they can exploit it and they can use you for their own gain. And I think that's what we see a lot especially in the inner cities with, you know, gang culture and, you know, the street lifestyle. Hmm. So you were able to break free from that. You put an application into a variety of places. You had moved from California. You find yourself in Arizona Mm -hmm. and you apply to the Hyatt Regency. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I had a, an amazing friend of the family, uh, who's no longer with us. And I feel like his purpose on his purpose on this earth was to help save me. And he relocated my brother and myself to Arizona to live with him and his wife because he saw how bad we were living in California. He saw the the path that we were on. He didn't want us to continue on that trajectory because that was his lifestyle. And he had made change. So relocating to Arizona was a foreign world. And it was surreal because I had grown up in a very inner city and the desert was the exact opposite. Mm. I didn't know anyone. It was too hot to go outside and hang out on a corner. I had nothing to do. So I went to school. And as I went to school, I found a vocational program that eventually led to culinary. That program gave me confidence. It gave me purpose. It gave me direction. It gave me leadership. It gave me discipline. And eventually that transpired into a full scholarship. I earned $30,000 out of high school to go to culinary school. Hmm. And one of the stipulations from my mentor and teachers at the time were, 
you need to get a real job within this industry. Not only do you need to learn the repetitions within a school environment, you need to do the work because you can't skip the work. You can't skip the hours of commitment. Do your 10,000 hours. So I applied everywhere I could, and the Hyatt Regency Phoenix was actually the first real chef job that I earned, and it's, it's, such, a, it's such a special place in my heart. And you're a senior in high school at this time. Senior in high school. Which is kind of unusual. I mean, you probably don't find too many seniors working in a kitchen in a major resort. Yeah, I was, uh, I was very mature for my age because I had to survive. So most of my mentality since my father passed away was I need to act older than I actually am. And I surrounded myself with much older people and I identified and carried myself in that manner. So by the time I was 16, 17 years old, I had already lived a very unique life. I'd already experienced things most people won't experience in their entire lives. So my reality was, was completely shaken and, and different than most teenagers at that time. So your application is kind of a funny story attached to your application. You put it in <laughs> and you get a call and they think it's a joke. Yeah, you know, my name, obviously, Brother Luck. Most people think it's a joke. They think I'm, you know, it's a stage name or, you know, some type of performance. But my reference was Tina Turner. <laughs> and I mean, why not? Right? Why not, right? Who doesn't want to put Tina Turner as a reference? That'll definitely get some attention. But the, the reality was my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, her maiden name is Turner. So... Tina Turner was actually my reference at the time. And when the chef called me for an interview, he thought it was HR playing a joke. So when I actually said, yes, this is Brother Luck, I'm a real person, and I do know Tina Turner, just not the Tina Turner you're thinking of, he said, I have to bring you in for an interview. I have to have a conversation with you to learn more. And, you know, again, the power of a name. I was able to capitalize on that and build a conversation, which eventually led to an opportunity. Mm. So you get into the restaurant, you start to make your way, you actually win a competition as a teenager, mm -hmm. best teen chef of Arizona. Yeah, I won, I, won multiple uh, I won multiple competitions just because I didn't have the grade point average to qualify for a lot of scholarships. So I had to earn it through my skill set. And it took multiple scholarships to actually attain a full scholarship. So it wasn't that I just won one scholarship. I had to earn multiple in order to pay for it because there was no option. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any support to say you're going to college. I had to figure it out. And I had, my whole goal to that point was join the military. But because of respiratory issues, I was disqualified immediately when I talked to a recruiter. So I knew that wasn't an option. And getting that education... And that scholarship on a full ride changed, changed my life. Yeah, we've talked on this show a lot with successful people and the immigrant edge. I mean, you're not an immigrant, but it has all the markings of that. Vin Chung is a, is a dermatologist here in town, runs a world-renowned clinic. And he talks about the narrow road when, you're, when you don't have anything. Mm -hmm. You really can't afford to take you know big leaps you have to stay and stay on focus yeah and that's kind of what you did you worked and worked and worked I, I i live in that mentality still to this day because even now as a business owner as you know a successful chef and i say that very loosely because we all have a different idea of what success means 
people still depend on me every day. When I hire a person, I hire their family. And my decisions affect them. So I have to be extremely aware of, of my actions on a regular basis because I can't afford to mess up. And I think that stems from my childhood and my adolescence into becoming a man. Hmm. Is these are my values as a person. You you have to make it happen. You have to make it work. Yeah. You know, pivot, adapt, evolve, figure it out. We're talking with Chef Brother Luck, and uh, I'm Paul Batura. You're listening to What a Life: Lessons from Legends. And brother, before we go to the break, uh, you, you're, you're in the restaurant or you're in the kitchen, and you say that because you, kind of the environment you know is a is a loud, boisterous, a lot of yelling. And that doesn't necessarily go over well, but we tend to we tend to be who we were growing up. Were you comfortable with that, or did you realize something has to change here? I'm maybe too intense in the kitchen. You know, kitchens can be extremely tough, and and still are extremely tough in in certain certain locations. Uh, my upbringing in a kitchen, it was very aggressive. But I, I was used to that environment. I grew up in a very urban environment where there's consequences to every action. And you have to be extremely cautious of what you say and what you participate in and what you observe. And as I walked into kitchens, I knew how to keep my mouth shut. I knew how to not wear my emotions on my sleeve. I knew how to fall in line and take your position because there's a hierarchy. There's a brigade. My consequences were much more drastic in the streets than they were in a kitchen. So a kitchen to me wasn't, there wasn't a fear, but there was a level of disrespect that you kind of had to endure and, and take it willingly, which, you know, today I disagree with completely. I think there's other ways to mentor and lead and educate and operate, which is why I don't have kitchens. I mean, my entire kitchen is, is ran by amazing, strong women. My entire kitchen at my signature restaurant. And it is a completely different environment than what I came up in. But as an owner, I have the ability to create that. And why did you decide to go in that direction? Because I see the brokenness in the hospitality industry, you know, especially in the hospitality industry. The addiction, the, 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 the mental health issues, the struggle, the pain, um, the, the numb yourself until the next shift mentality. It, it's not working. And as we talk about labor shortage, especially in the kitchens, it's because we've created a narrative that people don't want to be a part of. We've used and abused individuals for years. Why would I want to be a part of that and work for little pay? I can go do other things. And the pandemic just exploited that. It put that on a pedestal and said, you know what? There's other ways to make money. So for me, as an owner, I have the ability to change based on my decisions, my actions, because I'm the one signing the checks. So, you know... Practice what you preach. So you're hiring people that you feel are good fits, or are you, you're mentoring people you hire? My mentality in business is I hire mindset, I train skill set. I want a good person. I can teach you what I want you to do, but I need someone who actually has a passion, has good core values. I learn more about a person going on a walk with them for an interview than sitting at a table hmm. because it shakes them up. It takes them out of a comfort zone that they prepared for. You know, I'd rather have you clean a corner of the kitchen to see how humble you are, to see how your work ethic is, 
than to sit here and listen to what you've rehearsed to have an interview. So I, I think outside the box. I, yeah. I think we have to challenge um, what it means to operate and what it means to lead. I love that. Higher mindset, trained skill set. Why that's good advice. Whether you're hiring for a restaurant or you're hiring for any any place of employment. Any place. You, you um, we don't have a lot of time here, but we were. I was reading about your your time at the Craftwood Inn. Is that the name? Mm-hmm. Right in Manitou. You talked about the. There was one guy you asked to clean a kitchen, and he left within thirty minutes. Thirty minutes gone. You knew <laughs> this is not the kind yeah. of guy. <laughs> I, I remember it was it was my first day there, and I came in very intense. Uh, holding very high standards. I wanted to elevate and set a tone. And I wasn't disrespectful about it, but I did set an expectation of, we're going to clean this kitchen today and we're going to scrub. So here's your bucket, here's your scrubby, here's your degreaser, let's go. And within 30 minutes, I turn around and I go, where'd so-and-so go? They go, oh, chef, he quit. (laughs) So, you know, it's not meant for everyone, but I think, you know, don't, don't drop your standards of who you are and what you believe in Uh, just to appease individuals that won't meet those. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to elevate and motivate. That's great. Well, we're listening and you're listening. We're talking with uh, Chef Brother Luck. He is a local restaurateur. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about your time on the Food Network, your other restaurants, and then, of course, Thanksgiving. There's a lot of people (laughs) eager to hear from you about that. I'm Paul Vitura. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Boy, we have a treat today. We're talking with Chef Brother Luck. He is a local restaurateur here in Colorado Springs. If you haven't been to his restaurant, you need to go. Uh, It's called Four by Brother Luck, and there's a new one coming at the Colorado Springs Airport uh, early, probably mid-next year, called uh, Street Eats. So, Brother Luck, thanks for hanging on here after the break. No, absolutely. So we're talking about your mindset of hiring. It's, I think it's fantastic about hiring for uh, attitude and then training for skill. Um, you obviously have practiced that. It has served you well in your, in your various restaurants. Um, your journey to Colorado Springs has been circuitous like many people. Um, how did you get first connected with the Food Network and with uh, television competition shows. I mean, that's very different than running a day-to-day restaurant. Yeah, no, I I never had a desire to become a public figure or, you know, a a chef celebrity. I was chasing validation. I wanted approval. I wanted recognition. I wanted to be accepted. And I felt like I wasn't. When I applied for opportunities or I asked to be involved in different events or organizations, I was kind of slighted. Oh, you're from Colorado Springs. Oh, you, you work in a hotel. You're a hotel chef. Why would we, we... You don't have any celebrity that backs you. I really was bothered by that. Yeah. And I felt like I needed to have some type of validation. And it wasn't until Guy Fieri came to Colorado Springs to do his TV show. And they reached out to me at the time and said, hey, we'd love to feature your restaurant. And my ego shut it down. No, we're not a dive, we're not a drive. I didn't respect the brand at the time. I didn't understand. And what restaurant were you at at the time? I owned a restaurant called Street Eats at the time. So I had just opened my first restaurant. So I was full of ego at the time. I'm a real chef. And I passed on the opportunity 
And when I watched him come to town with his team in production, I saw our city chase him around and just become enamored by his his presence and his brand. They all wanted to be a part of it. And every restaurant he went to was busy, except mine. My restaurant was a ghost town. And I talked to a mentor about this, and I shared with him that story. And he said, you're an idiot. This is business, and you have to get your personal emotions out of it. You missed out on an opportunity to have exposure on a national and international platform when you are in a second or third tier city for free. Why would you pass on that marketing? And I'll never forget that flight home from New York thinking to myself, I've got to get on television. I've got to become a brand ambassador for Colorado Springs because no one's representing our city on that level. No one is in those rooms. No one is on those shows. No one is getting that respect. And it shouldn't be an outsider that comes to the city and and makes everyone excited. We should have this locally. So I started to apply and I started to reach out and I started to tap every resource that I had available. And the first show to call me was Beat Bobby Flay. I never expected not only to win the show, but to have a, a television career launched because of that decision. And he didn't he took it pretty well when you beat him. But <laughs> but a little bothered, I guess. I'm a lot bigger than Bobby Flay, so uh no, he was he was very, very, very um cordial. Uh Bobby is a is a boss. I mean he is a CEO, he is running a very large organization and he's a very smart business person. And when you watch the behind the scenes of what he does it's, it's amazing and it's inspirational because it pushes you to the next level to see that not only does he own his own production company, he funds and films his own shows, and then he packages, packages them and sells them to Food Network. I mean, it's a whole different level of business that as a chef, you get to see when you're behind the scenes on some of these shows. So I was, I was very inspired by the business acumen of, of who Bobby Flay is more than just you know, the cooking capabilities. Now, the cynic who's listening might think, you know, these cooking shows are all kind of put on. What we see is heavily edited. It's not really the way it is. But maybe there's, there's got to be some truth to that. But what, what would surprise people about what goes on behind the scenes in yeah. a cooking competition? Those clocks are those clocks. They don't stop. When you see 10 minutes on a clock for a challenge or you see 20 minutes on a clock for a challenge, it does not stop. That really happens in 20 minutes. So whether I'm cooking on Chopped or I'm cooking on Bobby Flay or I'm in a quick fire on Top Chef, a 10-minute challenge is a 10-minute challenge. And it doesn't matter if you burn your food. It doesn't matter if you cut your hand. It doesn't matter if you slip and fall. None of that matters. When the clock's up, it's done. So when you watch these shows and you watch us create that quick, that's real. There's no dancing around that. We just pulled that off in 10 minutes or 20 minutes. So I think that's that's something that most people don't realize or believe until you have a conversation with people that have done those shows. Yeah. You know, it's it's crazy to think that fast. Now it's one thing to get on the show, it's another thing to be an ambassador for Colorado Springs, all very noble ambitions and uh it's wonderful when you do well when you beat Bobby Flay. But when you lose, mm. how does that feel and how did you manage it? Yeah. 
I've I've lost way more than I've actually won. And I think that is such a real statement for many people, but because of perception or social media and personas, we don't realize that. We don't see, you know, the what's underneath the water, you know, the the swimming duck syndrome. Right? Everything's cool and calm and collective with the duck, but underneath that water, he's kicking and fighting to stay afloat. They don't see that battle, that struggle. Um, losing sucks, and it's humbling, and it comes with a toll. You have to work through these failures and these losses and learn. You know, I don't lose anymore. I learn. But it took me a lot of losses to learn that lesson. Hmm. And you know, a lot of people who are listening are not going to be on a cooking show, but these these same lessons apply Every to day. whatever you're doing in life, whether yeah. it's school or work or family. Yeah, There's I going just, to be some setbacks in your life. I just closed a restaurant. That's not fun. That's a failure. And it hurts because you try and, and you want it to be successful. But you've got to accept reality sometimes. And you know, if you're going to fail, fail fast. I think that's the greatest advice that I was ever given is if you're going to fail, fail fast. Hmm. So you can get back up and you can start over again and you can rebuild and you can try again. You know, we all are given the same 24 hours. So what are you doing with those 24 hours? And how long are you going to sit on the ground after a loss? Get up. Start walking again. Embrace this limited time that we have because we're all thinking about what will be our impact and what will be our legacy when we leave? Yeah. Because it's a short time. I, I'm thinking, you know, comedians tend to come from tough backgrounds. And I think some of it is because they're hungry for laughter. They're hungry to bring some joy into their life. They look to try to make sense of the misery. Do you ever find that it's somewhat appropriate, maybe, that coming from the challenging background that you did, you now run a restaurant that brings tremendous joy to people, to families, makes memories. I mean, we all remember celebratory meals at favorite places. Yeah. Is that is there a correlation there? Is that part of what motivates you? Food for me is a connection to the ghost of my past. I connect to my grandmother. I connect to my father. I connect to the people who are no longer here through the dishes. The smells, the recipes, the memories. I can feel all of that when I cook. And no matter where I'm at in the world, whether I'm giving a speech or I'm cooking at, at an event, I'm in the desert, I'm in the jungle, food is a bond in every culture. You don't have to speak a language to bond over food. We all know the table, we all know the fire. And I think that's where there's a commonality. So. It's, it's something that fills my bucket, being able to provide joy and memories and, and offering a service to people so they can smile. Food does that, and I see that every day in my restaurants. Mm. One of the things we talk a lot about here at the ministry is the importance of the family dinner, getting together, because you know families are busy, they've got games, they have you know, different types of activities that take them away. I presume you're a big advocate for sitting down whenever, wherever possible 
for a meal, even if it's a short amount of time. Absolutely. You know, this was instilled in me early in my career, but in the restaurant industry, we call this family meal. And family meal happens every day within most restaurants. Right before we open up, someone in the kitchen is responsible for preparing family meal. And that family meal is served to every server, bartender, dishwasher, cook, manager. We all sit down together and eat as a family, as a team. And it's something that is so powerful for many of our team members because some of us don't have that. And you can feel the bond that happens. And, you know, I think we're in a, a point of our, our society where we're starting to say work is not family. And I agree with that. Work is not family. But we still bond like a family and we still spend a lot of time together like a family. So to have some type of commonality where you can kind of drop the veil and connect for just a few minutes over a dish, family meal is extremely important. Yeah. <clears throat> the voice you're hearing is Chef Brother Luck, local restaurateur, and I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life Lessons from Legends. Okay, Thanksgiving is a few days away. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people have family recipes. There are some people who have no problem with it. They're, you know, they're, they're not professionals. They're not amateurs. They're somewhere in between. But give me some of your best tips. So let's say I'm relatively new to the game. Um, I want to do a traditional turkey dinner. What are some highlights I should be looking for when I'm preparing my Thanksgiving meal? Number one tip that I give every year when it comes to Thanksgiving is brine your turkey. Okay. Now, what does that mean? Brining a turkey sounds intimidating. And it's actually very simple. Because essentially what you're doing is you're creating a salt water solution, right? Water, salt, some type of flavor, some type of sweetness. You're making this salt water solution to submerge this raw bird into. And the reason is, is because within the meat, there's actually salt water in those cells. When it's submerged in a solution that has a higher level of salinity, it doesn't like it. So osmosis occurs. And the water starts to transfer back and forth between the two. So you're not only able to transfer the flavor profiles of that liquid into the meat, but also you're swelling the cells with more water. So when you actually cook your bird, you're going to have a much more juicy piece of turkey. Hmm. So brine your turkeys. It's so important. Google any brine recipe and try it. You will be blown away by the results. And as far as my thoughts on time, one pound equals one hour. So if you got a 20-pound bird, put it in the brine for 20 hours. Okay. <clears throat> and, and that's great. Uh, brine the turkey. Now, what about where to get your turkey from? Everyone has their opinions about these things. Fresh turkey, frozen turkey, does it matter? How important is this? The thing is, is that we're going to be flooded with turkeys from, you know, commodity. We're going to see turkeys everywhere because this is the time of year they sell turkeys. So most turkeys that you're going to get are going to come from some type of large production uh, ranch or farm or facility. You do want a bird that is raised on a clean diet and something that has uh, you know, far less um, hormones or, or, or you know, GMOs injected into the feed. But essentially, even if you're working with I don't know, a Walmart turkey. Buy it frozen, let it thaw out completely. You have to make sure it's thawed completely. So it's going to take a couple days. Make sure it's thawed out completely. After that, brine the turkey. 
then you have to just simply roast it. And I, I think we go crazy sometimes with all these rubs and seasonings and spices, but good old salt and pepper works. And you can do a beautiful bird with just salt and pepper. But make sure it's thawed out completely. Um, I think brining a turkey is important. I think trussing a turkey is important. Being able to tie the legs and the wings together and essentially eliminate all the additional surface area that you know a turkey that's loose and kind of just lays out uh, has. You know that that leads to uneven cooking. So by trussing and tying it up, you actually bundle it tight, and then you have something that roasts evenly. Oh, okay. So that's another really good trick when it comes yeah. to turkeys. Now out here, I've noticed there's a bit of a trend about frying. Deep fried turkey. I do not encourage deep frying your turkey if you're a beginner, right? We, we've seen horror stories of houses being burnt down. Because essentially what happens is you're taking hot oil, you're going to add something that has a lot of water content. If it's not thawed all the way, there's ice. So that's going to hit the oil. And when water hits hot oil, it ignites, it bubbles up, it steams. The one thing that happens is it will actually, if you don't measure it properly, it will overflow your pot and hit your flame, leading to your butane, which is what causes fire. So if you are not comfortable deep frying a turkey, do it with someone who is. Yeah. Okay. If you're going to go that route. Save that for the professionals. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So now what about cutting up the turkey? This is always a bit of a challenge. I have in my mind, you know, the Norman Rockwell, the grandfather, slicing <laughs> it perfectly. It's not always so easy. Is there? Is it easy? This is hard to explain over the radio probably. No, I, I think it's, it's, it's really straightforward. Essentially, you know, when you think about a bird, any bird, but we're taking turkey specifically, we're talking about, we call this an eight-way cut. So eight-way cut is essentially... A breast, a leg, a thigh, and a wing times two, because there's two sides to a bird. So if you're laying the bird on its back and its legs are, you know, crisscrossed in the air, you have the two breasts that are going to essentially wrap around the cavity of the chest, and then you're going to have the leg and thigh, which pop out very easy by just reaching under it and popping the hip joint out. So you can remove the leg and thigh very fast, and then you're just carving the breast off of the cavity. At that point, there's nothing really left on that bird besides the carcass. So, you know, remove the breast first, pop the leg and thighs off, and then carve it separate. Hmm. I think that's a great trick when you're talking about carving it. All right, that's good. And now what about stuffing the bird? Cook it with stuffing or not stuffing? Never, 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 never cook stuffing within a raw bird because what happens is we have to consider salmonella. We don't want to get people sick. So when you're taking a raw bird... Uh, cross-contamination is a real thing. You know, taking something that's raw, putting it on something cooked, and then eating it, it doesn't get to the proper temperature to eliminate the bacteria. So when you stuff a bird with stuffing, the stuffing never gets hot enough within the center if the bird's cooked properly. You have to overcook the bird to get the stuffing hot enough. So what we suggest as professionals is roast your turkey, cook your stuffing separately, and then stuff it for your presentation hmm. so you can be safe. All right. This is good. This is free advice from Chef <laughs> Brother Luck. I mean, this is years of experience. Okay, so you have the bird. That's going to be the traditional entree. All kinds of sides. What, what type of dressing, stuffing do you like, oh, do you recommend? There's so many different types. So many there. different types. You know, I've, I've lived all over the place. Uh, from cornbread stuffings to baguette stuffings to pumpernickel, I've, I've had them all. Uh, me personally, every year, I like to do uh, a nice sausage, walnut, um, brioche stuffing. I think brioche is a great bread for stuffing because it's an egg and butter bread. 
So it's got a little bit more fluff. It's got a little bit more body to it. Uh, when you're making your stuffing, the most important part is to dry your bread out. You don't have to buy the stovetop. You don't have to, to, to buy the, the breadcrumbs that are already done for you. Dice up the bread, throw it in your oven at 200 degrees, and let it dry out for a couple hours. That will give you enough dried crouton to be able to mix it with your chicken stock or your turkey stock and your egg because that's your binder. That's what's going to bond it. And then you just work in your garnishes, your aromatics, your sausage, your mushrooms, your celery, carrot, onion, your walnuts, whatever you're putting in there. That's that sauteed and then added to it and then season it, throw it in the oven, bake it. The egg will firm up. It will bond to the stock. You end up with something very moist, something very creamy. And uh, make a good choice of bread. Oh, this is good. You're making us hungry here. <laughs> this is good. Okay, so what about uh, all the different sides? I mean, potatoes. Uh, people often have both white, you know, traditional potato and then sweet potato. Yeah. What type of advice can you give there? Um, when it comes to making mashed potatoes, uh, the most important part is to simmer your potatoes. Do not boil your potatoes. Because what happens when you boil rapidly, right, the water's breaking the surface constantly, you're, you're actually forcing a lot of water into the, to the actual starch, to the potato. So when you go to cream those out, they're, they're holding on to too much water. So that's how you end up with very lumpy potatoes. If you slowly simmer them until they're tender and then drain them, I actually put the potatoes back into the pot and I turn the heat back on just to evaporate the remaining water that might still be on those potatoes before I take them to you know, my ricer or my KitchenAid or my masher to get them nice and smooth. And then add hot milk, hot cream and butter to your puree. That way you don't end up with something that's lumpy. You don't want to add cold to hot. You want to add hot to hot. Ah, so it's another okay. easy trick. That's good. And uh, sweet potatoes, marshmallows or not? I'm, I'm against the marshmallow, personally. Um, I think sweet potatoes are sweet enough. And uh, I think sweet potatoes roasted with some brown sugar and some, some cinnamon and allspice and nutmeg and ginger, um, you know, a touch of chili, maybe some cayenne or, or chipotle, adds such a beautiful characteristic to a sweet potato. You know, maybe some roasted garlics or caramelized onions in those. Um, take it more savory because it's already very sweet. So when I think about food, I'm thinking about balance of flavor. You know, what's sweet? How can I balance that out? So always be thinking about contrast versus similarity. Okay. So let's jump to dessert in our remaining time here. So, the, you know, quintessential pumpkin pie. Uh, what do you think? I mean, there's some strong opinions I, out there about pies. I, I have to have a pumpkin pie personally. Um, you know, because I like sweet potatoes as a side, which is why I like pumpkin pie as a dessert versus sweet potato pie. Um, I think cheesecake is another one that, hmm. that should be done. I think it's a very easy dish to make, and I think cheesecakes can be turned into so many things. I think this year I'm going to make a Banana Foster's cheesecake. That's kind of what's, what's playing on my radar right now. Okay. So, um, And then I think another good thing to have for Thanksgiving, which is great for the kids... Let's make fresh cookies. You can get them involved. They're easy to bake. They cook in 10 minutes. And you can make the dough ahead of time. If there's any tip that I would give you beyond what I've already said is do your mise en place. And, and when I say mise en place, it's a French term that we use in the kitchen, which means everything in its place. You have to do the work ahead of time so you can simply fire the day of. You're just putting things in the ovens. You're just heating things up. Do the work two, three days ahead of schedule. 
That way it's staged, it's ready to go, and then when you're ready to fire everything, you can fire everything. <laughs> but if you try to do it all that morning, you're going to be on a struggle bus, and you're going to hate life, and you're going to have tons of dishes, and you're not going to have fun, right? The whole point of Thanksgiving is to, to have fun with the family and bond. So don't get caught up in the kitchen with your head down because you didn't do the work ahead of time. You can pre-cook the, the macaroni and you can pre-make the cheese sauce and you can mix those up to where all you got to do is throw in the oven. You can pre-make the croutons and you can have your sautéed vegetables and sausage ready to go. So all you got to do is mix it and bake it. You can have your turkey brined and trussed and ready to go on the sheet tray with the rack. So all you got to do is toss in the oven. All of these things can be done ahead of time so you can actually enjoy your Thanksgiving. Ah, that is a good word. And it's kind of a metaphor for life, right? Absolutely. Do the work ahead of time. And you can enjoy things a little bit more uh, leisurely. So if someone's listening uh, and they think, boy, I'd, that's just beyond me, they, they can get takeout from you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the restaurant uh, for my brother Luck is offering sides this year. Uh, I'm teaching tons of online classes. We have an organization, a private Facebook group called What the Luck. So I'm teaching all these classes. Tonight I'm actually teaching uh, cranberry sauce in a different way. I'm teaching them how to do a gas streak tonight. Um, we're going to be doing a stuffing, so I'm going to show them how to make my sausage and walnut stuffing. Uh, and then we're actually going to roast some some turkey breast. I'm going to show them how to pan sear ch- a turkey breast, glaze it with some rosemary and some, some maple syrup, and actually have a different way of serving a turkey that isn't on the carcass. Oh, that's great. And they can get in touch with you how? Uh, I can be reached across the board at Chef Brother Luck. Uh, my website is chefbrotherluck.com. We always encourage you to sign up for the newsletter on the website. My manager is very, very specific that I have to post on our newsletter first before I take it to any social media. So if you're on our newsletter, you're getting the information first and foremost. Well, Brother Luck, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for helping to make our Thanksgiving a special one this year. Absolutely. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.